Well, good morning. It's good to see you. It's good to be uh, back with you again. Uh, my name is Dave, and uh, if we haven't met yet, I'm one of the uh, pastors here. So glad that you're here. I'm glad to be here worshiping with you in the house of the Lord uh, this morning. Um, for those of you, some of you know, but uh, maybe uh, maybe if you don't, I'm returning from uh, a little trip. I got to take my oldest daughter, Ellie, uh, to the uh, land of Israel, and uh, we've been uh, touring and kind of traveling around. Uh, we we kind of jumped in with another uh, church's tour group, and so um, we, uh, we left on Saturday two weeks ago, and we just got back late on Friday evening. And um, so if, if I kind of, you know, if you've talked to me afterwards and I seem like a little bit more sort of spacey or whatever, I don't know what time it is right now. I don't know, you know, if I'm supposed to be eating dinner or breakfast or waking up or going to bed or anything. I've not had a chance to um, adjust from uh, the jet lag. But I will say uh, my heart is so full. It was just an incredible trip. Many of you have asked, so let me just kind of answer some questions that I've been getting from, uh, from, from all of you at the same time. I had a fantastic trip. It was really, really good time. Ellie did too. First time out of the country. It was maybe a little bit, um, you know, a big bite to, to chew, but she did a great job. And, um, you know, we were uh, kind of going and just, just like, you know, hitting all the sites. We saw more than 40 sites, and it was just, I mean, we were on the bus early, and, uh, and, and then we just kind of go all day. And there's teaching and touring and pictures and learning and just, I mean, I would get back and uh, my brain was just sort of fried. However, I will say this, and um, we would love to take a, uh, a group over um, probably two years out. Next year is pretty already pretty booked, so we're probably looking at 25. Um, so as we get some plans together and kind of look seriously at that, you'll be hearing more about that. Many of you have already told me, man, I would love to go someday. And I would just say, if you can or you ever get the opportunity, it is an expensive trip. It's not getting cheaper, I'll tell you that. But it is so, so worth it. Um, you don't have to go to understand uh, Scripture, and you, your Bible is completely um, sufficient. Like, you don't have to be there. But I'm telling you, um, I was coming back, and, and uh, just even on the plane ride back, you know, preparing my heart for Holy Week, getting ready for um, just even, you know, our time here this morning. I was reading through some of the Gospels, and just as you read passage after passage, you know, scene after scene, all of these things, it's just like having been there and, and walked there and, and seen with my eyes, um, you know, where all this occurred, my faith was encouraged. And, um, you know, one of the things that I just, you know, came away with, again, this was my second time there, but one of the things that I came away with is that this is the historical reliability of this book that we hold is, is so, um, so, so good. And, and it is only getting better. I mean, they're continuing to excavate, continuing to find things that are proving and pointing, you know, that, that the things said here, um, I mean, one, one thing, there's these seals that they found just recently, and um, these two seals, uh, they were uh, two, two names that matched uh, four, uh, two of the four ministers of, of, um, of uh, King Zechariah who put Jeremiah in a pit, okay? Uh, two of the ministers in the place where the minister's house would be, two of these names found in the same place, all like next to each other, and both of these names are mentioned in the same verse um, in uh, the book of Zechariah. I mean, there's just all these things that you see and experience, and you're like, man, that is so cool. So cool, and so I'm going to continue to share stories and pictures and and all of that, like in the in the weeks to come, um, and uh, as we continue on um, in, in our study in God's Word, and and just so so encouraged by that. But I just want to you know thank you for allowing me the opportunity to uh, to go and to be there, and um, and I'm I'm coming back. I'm excited. Okay, so I just want to like I know you didn't just get to go, um, but but I did, and so I want to like kind of bring if I can just kind of bring some excitement back with you. Okay, like you can't spend that 
time there and then not uh, come back excited about the word and God and what he's doing. And so I'm excited about this passage that we're getting into uh, this morning. If you have a copy of scripture, I hope you do, um, you can take that out and turn to uh, the book of Luke, we're going to be in chapter 19. If you don't have a copy of Scripture, um, there you should be able to find one underneath one of the seats in front of you. As always, we walk through the Word of God together, and so I'd love for you to get your eyes on that, have that in your lap. So, so open that up, turn that on, uh, go to Luke chapter 19, and we're going to be beginning in verse 28 this morning. And what we're looking at is um, we kind of were between series. We just wrapped up our series in Daniel. Uh, so thankful for Pastor Jeff and taking that final week. And then uh, we had Josh last week that shared uh, from, from Jeremiah and, um, and, and thankful for, uh, for those things. But, but excited this week to look at um, uh, what happened on this day. We call this day Palm Sunday. It's the beginning of what we call Holy Week. It's, it's Jesus's final week before he went to the cross. And we're, we're getting ready here at, this, at our church. And, and churches you know, across our planet are going to be um, looking at and celebrating and remembering um, the resurrection of Jesus and uh, his death on the cross this coming weekend. And as we prepare our hearts, I wanted to uh, look at this passage, which speaks about what we call the triumphal entry, but it's when Jesus began his, his final week there in Jerusalem. And my hope is this, is that for some of us, this is a familiar passage, I think, in, in kind of generality, but maybe not a, a scripture passage that we've studied recently. And so I want to take the time and kind of walk through the passage, and my hope is, is that it's going to kind of prime the pump a little bit, sort of get our hearts set for this week ahead as we prepare to respond to worship, um, uh, in worship to God over the Easter weekend ahead. This is something that will prepare us in our hearts as we um, get ready to, uh, to worship this, this weekend. And this is where Jesus enters into uh, Jerusalem. And so let's uh, look at these verses together. I just want to read it as we uh, begin our time studying uh, this together. It begins in verse 28, um, and we'll have it on the screen as well. It says, And when he said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem, he being Jesus. And when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you. Where on entering, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he told them, and they were untying the colt and its owners said to him, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their colts on the colt, um, set Jesus on it, he rode along, and they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice, praising God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven, glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Uh, this is the word of the Lord that we are going to study here uh, together. Uh, uh, the title for the sermon this morning is Here Comes Our King. This is where we see this picture of Jesus again entering into Jerusalem in a very intentional, in a very distinct way. And what we want to do, I want to kind of just walk through the story, and then I think we're going to see some of the way that we can respond to this. 
So as we often do, we're going to kind of just march through verse by verse, and then we're going to uh, seek to apply it. I'll have kind of the application more toward the end, but I want to make sure we understand all that's happening, because there's so much that's happening here in this passage. Uh, Verse 28, let's look at it together, kind of walk our way slowly through it. When he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Let's make sure we have kind of a good understanding for context. And, um, you know, I, uh, uh, again, it's, it's so fresh in my mind. So I just want to kind of impart to you some of these images and sort of this, this picture of what's just happened. Jesus, uh, from the time that he was what's what we call the transfiguration, he was with his disciples. He went up on a mountain. The, the uh, presence of God kind of came down and he was transfigured there and, and these disciples experienced. From that point forward, he was on this sort of sight set, quest is, is kind of determined to get to Jerusalem. He was going to Jerusalem, why? Because that was the place that he was going to be crucified. He knew that. He, Jesus came to earth to die. He was born to die. And now he had been doing this public ministry, going between the the area and the villages and the towns, and he's been teaching about the kingdom of God, but now it was time for him to go and ultimately do what he had come to accomplish. And so he is going up to Jerusalem. So he's been making his way toward Jerusalem for some time, and he gets really close. He gets within a couple miles. He comes to the town of Bethany. And Bethany is just on the east uh, side of the Mount of Olives. It's just to the west of Jerusalem, so only a couple miles away. And there he performs an incredible miracle. His good friend Lazarus has died, and he raises Lazarus to life again. And so Lazarus is like the PR for Jesus is pretty good at this point. Like he's going out, and he's like, hey, man, I was dead. And, and, and we sang about this like similar, right? Like I was dead, and, and Jesus brought me back to life. I mean, how do you argue with that? Like it was, and it was stirring up the people to the point that the, the, uh, the temple officials, the uh, religious leaders are like, we need to kill this Lazarus again. We need to arrest Jesus. We need to stop him. They, they, that's when they kind of set forward their plan to arrest and kill him. But this was the, put in motion there by Lazarus being uh, raised from, uh, from the dead. And so this crowd sort of begins to stir, this excitement, this energy is kind of going. And so Jesus is like, well, it's not quite time yet. And so he sort of retreats a little bit. He goes back to the wilderness, kind of past Jericho toward the um, uh, river of Jordan and into the wilderness again. And just to kind of let things cool off a little bit, we don't have like a time stamp if it was just a couple weeks or something like that. It wasn't a long time, but it was just, you know, some time passes. And then he begins making his way back to Jerusalem again for at the time of the Feast of the Passover, And so he, along with many others, are making their way back. And he comes from um, uh, the the river, uh, Jordan River. Um, I was actually at the place just this last week where, where, um, you know, very close to where this would have been, just north of where it hits the Dead Sea. And and kind of this is the place. It's like right in line with Jericho. This is where the Israelites would have crossed in. This is where John would have been baptizing. This is where Jesus would have been baptized. This is the place that Jesus goes. And he's making his way back towards Jerusalem. It's only like 18, 20 miles sort of trip. I mean, he could have easily, in that day, they would have easily done that in a day. It's a day's journey. And so he's walking from the River Jordan to and through Jericho. And then in Jericho, if you kind of scan your eyes back, it says he heals a blind beggar. And so he's now just performed another miracle. And as he's getting there, he's teaching along the way. He has these parables. He goes to the house of Zacchaeus and teaches there. And so there's all these things. And so I say all that to just kind of put this in context. People are excited about what's happening here. When he said these things, he went on ahead, and he's going up to Jerusalem. 
Now, wherever you are in Jerusalem or in Israel, you always go up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem sits up like an elevation higher than most of the country. There's other higher mountains, but Jerusalem is up. All the surrounding areas are down. And so you're always kind of going up to Jerusalem. But it's not just up in elevation. It's up spiritually. Like this is the place where God's presence was. This is the place where the temple was, where the Holy of Holies, where, where the people would travel. And so you have to understand that, that people were making, not just Jesus, but many, many people were making their way to Jerusalem at this point. They were all going up to Jerusalem. But Jesus had had his sight set on this for some time, and now the time was finally come where he was going to make his entry into Jerusalem. He had been there before, but this time it was different. He was in his final days. When he drew near to Bethphage and to Bethany, that is at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples on ahead. Now, let me just show you kind of a picture of what this would have looked like. Obviously, it's a little different now today, um, but this is a picture I took just this last week. Um, this is on the Mount of Olives. I'm, I'm on, you know, kind of part way up and sort of overlooking. Now, obviously, it would have looked quite different in Jesus' day. Um, you would take off that Dome of the Rock and you'd put on, you know, uh, Herod's temple would have been there in all of its splendor. Um, you would take away all of those graves and, and it would have been just more natural, uh, all of that between would have probably been just natural uh, landscape and, and, and trees in, in the valley. There would have been a lot of olive trees kind of growing there. That's why they called it the Mount of Olives, is there was just a place where many olive trees grew. But Jesus would have been making his way from uh, Bethany down over the Mount of Olives and then through, this is the Kidron Valley, which he would have passed through, and then on to the left side there of the Temple Mount, and he would have entered the city there. So it kind of gives you this picture, this perspective. I mean, as Jesus is coming over, he knows and he can see clearly where it is that he's going to, where he's marching toward, what he's come for, who he's come for. He's able to see it so clearly. I think it's just helpful to have this picture in your mind as what's happening. But here's what he says. He gives some instructions to his disciples. Look at verse 30. He says, saying, go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat and untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. Now, at this point, I just kind of want to point out something. Um, this is a really important passage for us. One of the ways that we know, or one of the reasons we know this is an important passage, is we have four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? Uh, four different accounts, all telling of the life, the ministry, the death, resurrection of Jesus. But all four accounts sort of record different perspectives of the same situations, but they don't all record the same things, right? But this, this is one of those stories which we see repeated and accounted for in all four gospel accounts. And so when you see that, you know, okay, this is a big deal, right? All four thought that it was worthy of writing down. But one of the things that you will notice, and I would encourage you to do this, is go and read some of the other accounts this week, and you're gonna find that some of the details vary a little bit. Like here, it says that they went and found a colt. If you go and read some of the other, you're going to see that it was a donkey and a colt. So there was two animals. That, that's what Matthew records. Now, don't be, I just want to point this out. Don't be concerned when you find some of these variances between the different gospel writers. You need to look at it not as like they were all trying to write the exact same, same thing in all the exact same ways. You know, they weren't trying to get it all sort of perfect. What they were trying to do is record accurately from their perspective what happens, and they're all writing with different themes or sort of purposes in mind. And so picture it more like newspaper reporters, right, all reporting on the story, and sometimes they're going to get all the major facts right, but 
they might choose to leave some stuff out for clarity. They might choose to focus on other things to drive home a point or to prove something. So here, uh, Luke sort of makes the point. He just talks about the colt. He doesn't talk about the donkey. Now, Jesus only rolled on the colt, but there was two animals that were present. Okay, he didn't roll on both of them. I think that's kind of, you know, if you read the account in Matthew, it says that they, they sat on them. It's saying them, he sat on the cloaks, them, not them like, you know, riding two, two animals at the same time, okay? So it's just, it's, it's kind of helpful to know this. But Jesus gives these very specific instructions to his disciples, and it's kind of peculiar, right? He says, go in the village, find this colt, one that no one has ever yet sat on. That's important. We're going to come back to that. He's like, untie it and bring it here. And he's like, if the owners approach you and they're like, why are you stealing my colt? Tell them the Lord has need of it. And so the disciples do what good disciples do. See, good disciples, they follow the instruction of the one who leads them. All right? And so Jesus gives these instructions and they're following the instructions. So they went ahead, found it just as they told him. There's the colt. So they go up and they're like, all right, I think this is Grand Theft Auto, but we're going to take this thing, right? And so they, we, are, we are taking this thing away and they start untying it. And then they, uh, you know, the owners, as, as expected, come out and say, hey, why are you stealing my colt? And they're like, the Lord has need of it. Now, again, I kind of find this peculiar. It, it, sort of my mind goes to, and this, is, this will show you just kind of sometimes, you know, um, the, the mind of your pastor kind of wanders to various things. But, uh, you know, I think of Star Wars when, like, it's like, you know, these aren't the droids you're looking for, you know, kind of thing. Like, he just kind of says that, you know, sort of waves the hand, and, like, they're like, oh, okay, fine, you can take him. Like, is that what's going on here? Is it just kind of these magic words or something? We don't really know, but maybe Jesus, like, this is kind of like the password. Like, maybe Jesus would have passed through this place many times. Maybe he went and already kind of prearranged this with the owners, and he said, hey, at some point, I'm going to need to borrow your colt. And when some guys come and they take it, they're going to tell you the Lord has need of it. When they do, just let them do it. I'm like, okay, you know. Or is this like more of a miracle? Did God just kind of work through this and allow this to happen? I think either is very plausible. But the disciples go and they bring back this colt, which nobody had ever sat on before. And when they bring it back, verse 34, um, or verse 35 rather, they brought it to Jesus and then throwing their, clo colts, their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. So now you have this picture of Jesus sitting on cloaks, sitting on the colt of a donkey. A colt could be either a horse or a donkey. We again know from the other gospels, this is a donkey. He's riding in on a young uh, donkey. And this is very intentional. You see, Jesus did this. Uh, this is very unique. Uh, just kind of quiz time. Do you, how many other times do we see Jesus riding on an animal? Any guesses? Zero. I'll tell you, zero. There's no other times in which Jesus is riding on an animal. This is the only time that we have recorded. Um, now, maybe he did, and we just didn't get it recorded, but this is the only time that it was recorded. And so Jesus is making a very intentional action here. Why? Well, ultimately, what he's doing is he's fulfilling prophecy. We're going to come back to this in a minute, but, but he's fulfilling prophecy spoken by the prophet Jer or Ze uh, Zechariah. And it was prophesied that the Messiah would ride in on a donkey. And so he's, he's doing this in a very intentional way. But more than that, it was so important that this was a brand new cult. Why? Well, because things that had not yet been used, right? Like oxen that had not had a, a yoke put on them or uh, animals that had not been used before were, were reserved or sort of set aside for the temple. There was something about this, this new uh, that was uh, the sacredness or the specialness for, uh, for use within uh, the temple. 
is what was happening here. So we have this colt that's never been ridden on before, okay? So this is like not, not used, it's not pre-owned, right? It's not from the pre-owned lot or anything like that. Like this is brand new, has the fresh car, new car smell, right? Everything, the mileage was very low. Uh, we're talking zero on this one, this particular model. And Jesus is now on this and he's making his way towards Jerusalem. But notice what happens. As he rode along, they, being the people, right, spread their cloaks on the ground. And as he was drawing near, already on his way down from the Mount of Olives, right, so we already have a picture of what that looks like. He's coming down the Mount of Olives, going toward the Kidron Valley, getting to go up into Jerusalem. The whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. So here's the thing is this crowd begins to gather around Jesus as he's coming into Jerusalem. And you have to understand that the city at this point was already swelling with people. Uh, it was, we said, Passover. Passover is one of three pilgrimage feasts that the Jewish people celebrated. There was three times a year that the Jewish people would travel to Jerusalem to, uh, to celebrate, to worship, to um, repent. Uh, there was different purposes for the different feasts, but Passover is one of those pilgrimage feasts. And so remember, this is after the exile. We just finished Daniel, right? And so the people have already been scattered to all sorts of lands. So people not just came from all over the land of Israel, but they came from all over various places. And so there was languages and cultures all coming together and what they would have done is they would have come early to Passover so that they could purify themselves. They would have gone through this, this kind of purification process. They would have been washing in the pools and getting their, themselves ready for Passover. And so they were not unclean at the time when the, 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 uh, the, the festival began. Josephus, the historian, just slightly after the time of Jesus, he records um, what this would have looked like. He accounts that 2.7 million people traveled to Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover. Now, even if his numbers were slightly inflated from these times, I mean, that's still, that's a ton of people coming and gathering there in the city. So you have to picture, again, that the city was swelling with people, overloading the city with people, and now this crowd is beginning to gather. And why are they gathering? Well, again, remember the context. He's just, weeks before, raised Lazarus to life. He's just healed a blind man as he was making his way. Like, it would have been earlier that day or the day before, he just healed this blind man and so these miracles are taking place. His teaching is drawing people. People are excited about who he is. And now, and now they have this picture of him riding in on an animal into Jerusalem. I mean, they are excited because they have this picture of what? A king coming. They're like, this finally is the king that we have been waiting for. This is the savior. This is the Messiah. And you have to understand that our hearts aren't, drawn in their natural sense to respond in this way. God has been, Jesus has been moving in their hearts and bringing them to this place to see and to respond to him um, in this way. But they begin to respond to him as a king. That's why they're placing their cloaks on the road, right? And so they're placing their, their, their cloaks down. They're taking off their cloaks. I mean, clothes were a little hard, harder to come by in that day. You didn't just run down to Old Navy and like buy a $4 t-shirt and like, you know, just get another. I mean, they, they were much harder to come by. And so they're laying their, their cloaks down to be trampled on, to be walked over by Jesus on this colt, right, as a sign of honor and respect. One thing you'll notice, again, kind of variances in the Gospels, Luke chooses not to mention the palm branches. But palm branches were part of it as well. Another symbol. We often, again, we call this, what, Palm Sunday in response to 
they were putting down these palm branches. You know, I don't know what you picture in Israel, but, but there is an abundance of palm trees, like, everywhere. They're date palms. They grow dates there, and these, they have these palm fronds. And so you can get them all over the place. Uh, here's a picture of one um, just taken recently. Like this is, this is a, a date palm from Israel, and uh, date palms grew up all over the place. And uh, Herod, when he would um, have people that would come and visit or he'd go to Rome, he would bring, it's recorded that he would bring dates as a gift. Like it's kind of like, you know, when your relatives come or you go someplace, you bring cheese, okay? They had, right, they had uh, dates, and so the dates, actually, fun fact, I didn't know this. You know how when Israel first came to the land, it was the promised land, and it was referred to as the land flowing with what? Milk and honey. What kind of milk and what kind of honey was it? Do you know? I know around here, we often think of cow's milk. It wasn't cow's milk. It was goat milk. There was all these um, getties, these, these like ibex is, is another name for them, but they, they would get goat milk from, from, from this, and so it was tons of goat milk, and it wasn't bee honey. I didn't know this before this last week. I just learned this. It was date honey. They actually take the dates and they make honey out of it. And so it's slightly different sort of flavor. It's not, like, it's not quite as sweet as bee honey, but it makes sense. I mean, when you're there, even today, they grow so many dates. I can tell you some fun stories about dates and some things that kind of I learned this week with, um, with them. They've actually grown, they found seeds in Masada, 2,000-year-old seeds that they've been able to produce dates from. They've only made like a couple hundred of them, um, but uh, they have 2,000-year-old like dates that would have kind of been back from that time that they've uh, kind of been able to reproduce uh, from that. But, but these, these palms would have been everywhere. And so they're laying down their cloaks, they're laying down palm branches. Why? All because they're trying to show honor and respect to someone that would be a king. And what a juxtaposition, though, of, of an image here, right? Because you have Jesus riding in, but he's not riding on some purebred, kind of magnificent war horse, right, dressed in armor or with all sort of, you know, the, 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 the pomp and circumstance and fanfare that you would expect from a king, right? He's just riding in with a simple donkey laid over with cloaks, it was a sign of humility. It was a sign of servanthood. I mean, you would expect a prophet to come riding in on a donkey, not a king. But the people are treating him as this great warrior king who was coming. And so you have kind of these two pictures uh, happening here. But they're laying down their cloaks. They're laying down palm branches. And what are they saying? They're saying... Uh, as he's getting closer, right, on the way down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples, they're saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and, glor and glory in the highest. Now, here's the thing, is that the other, um, the other gospels tend to latch onto that word Hosanna, but here, Luke, he captures some of the very words that were spoken by the angels at Jesus' birth. Right? Glory to God in the highest. Peace on what earth and goodwill toward men. Here he says peace in heaven and glory in the highest. These words are being repeated here as Jesus is moving in and the king has now come. The scene is set. The scene is set. So here's our response. Here's a few things that I think as we prepare our hearts to reflect on what Jesus has done that we need to think about in kind of preparing our hearts to worship uh, even this week. Here's the first thing. If you're taking notes, write this down. It's this, is that Jesus is the triumphant king that we need. Make no mistake about it. Jesus is the king. In some ways, they were very right in saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, right? 
Is he King Jesus? Yes, he is. But is he the king that they thought was coming? No, he wasn't. See, there was kind of these mixed, Palm Sunday, this, this triumphal entry is a unique situation, right? Because you have, they're doing the right thing, but they're kind of doing it with the wrong understanding. They don't fully comprehend and understand what was happening here. Even the disciples, Luke, um, or John's gospel says that the disciples didn't understand until after Jesus was glorified that he was actually fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah as he came. But you have here this understanding that was, was going on. And here's the thing is that Jesus is the king, the triumphant king that we so desperately need. And the people of God had been waiting for a king for a very, very long time. Let's just kind of do a little bit of review on um, uh, some history or kind of catch up to speed if you're not familiar or don't want to, just kind of connecting these dots. It's so helpful to know some of the ways that these connect because it, it gives meaning to what we're studying here. But Israel, when they entered into the land, right, this was the land that God had promised them. And so they drove out the other peoples, the other nations, and God had set some boundaries for them and gave them the land. And then they were now a people in a particular place that God had uh, designed for them. So they're now living in the land, and what, what do they do? They, they establish themselves. They, they divide up into the tribes, and they have all the different land, and they begin to live their life. And, and what we see is Judges records for us this cycle of, of sort of bad choices followed by uh, a whole bunch of just trouble for the people, followed by God kind of stepping in and leading them out of it. And so what happens is it says that everyone did what was right in his or her own eyes. And then you see all this trouble start to come. And so what does God do? He raises up a leader, or as it's called, a judge, to lead the people in that particular season. They return to the Lord. They begin to worship rightly again. They begin to respond to God rightly again. And then the cycle kind of begins again. It says, and everyone did what was right in his, his own eyes, right? And they do this again. You see the cycle repeat throughout Judges till finally what the people say is they look around at all the other nations. They're like, everybody else has a king. And I feel like that sometimes with my kids, right? And well, everyone else has a bad time. Everyone else has a fun. Everyone else, you know, it's like, everyone, they're like little children, right? Everyone else has a king. And they say to God, they're like, we need a king. And they're like, give us a king. Give us a king. And they are unrelenting in this till finally God's like, it's not the best thing for you to have a king, right? I am meant to be your king. But if you want an earthly king, I will allow you to have one. And you're gonna see just how uh, broken of a system that is. And so he allows them to have a king. And who's the first king? You remember? Quiz time. Saul. Yeah, you got it. Uh, Saul is the first king. It's okay if you don't know. It's totally fine. But we're just going like, to kind of review here. So Saul, what do we think? Good king? Bad king? Bad. Okay? Saul was a bad king. He did a terrible job. He looked the part, right? He was tall. He was handsome. He had everything, kind of the stature that he needed. Um, he had this kind of kingly presence about him, but he was a bad leader. He didn't follow the Lord well. He, he didn't listen to the decrees or the commands. He kind of did things his own way. And so we see that it says that, that God removed his spirit from Saul. He took his honor and his blessing away from Saul, and he began to work in another person. He anointed another king. Who's the second king? David. Yes, all right. So David, what do you think? Good king, bad king? He was good. He was actually a really, really good king, but like the best king that, that Israel maybe ever had, but had a major moral failing. Like even a great king, he still, he slept with another man's wife and then had that man killed to cover it up, okay? Like incredible moral failing, but he repents, he comes back. God calls him a man after his own heart. He led the kingdom well, but he had his flaws. 
He was a man of war. He was a man, obviously, this, this moral failing. And so um, there were things that God didn't allow him to do. Like he wanted to build a temple, and God didn't allow him to build a temple. And so he was limited in his ability and his, I mean, he was a good king, but he still had his flaws. And then we have the third king, Solomon, right? Solomon, what do we think? Good king, bad king? In the middle, all right? If you said, yeah, he started out great. He did a great thing. You know, if we think about Solomon, we think about wisdom. He asked God for wisdom, and that was a great thing to ask, and God gave him great wisdom, gave him great abundance. He built the temple for, it was Solomon's temple. It was this, you know, magnificent thing. They moved from the tabernacle at Shiloh to the temple at uh, Jerusalem, and now the temple was there, and, uh, but, 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 Solomon's heart was distracted. He started chasing after these foreign wives. He had 1,000 wives and, and, and all these women that he was kind of you know, going after, and they brought in all of this foreign idol worship. They set up false uh, idols to, or uh, altars to false gods, and they were worshiping false gods and worshiping other, uh, kind of following other religions, other, other things beyond uh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so therefore, that's when the nation started to crumble. After that point, the nation was divided. There was a bunch of other kings in the north, kings in the south. Some of them were good, but most of them were bad. And that's where, so we, this kind of all puts it into context. I think this is helpful. We just studied Daniel. Daniel happens in the time what is referred to as the exile, right? The people of God were exiled from the land. They, their hearts wandered. They, they were broken as a people. These kings actually did a very, very poor job of leading them. And then in 605 BC, right, Babylon comes in, overthrows Jerusalem, takes the people away. And now you have centuries and centuries of the people living away. We have 70 years, right, that they're in Babylon. And then you have Persia coming in, allowing them to return to the land. So the people start to come back. Nehemiah leads some people. They rebuild the walls. Hezekiah comes. They rebuild the temple. Ezra's leading the people. They're returning to the land, but there's still centuries centuries where they're living in this land and it's kind of this shadow of what it was, right? They rebuild the temple, but it says when they finished that the, the old men cried because they remembered the magnificence of the temple before. And so you have here this longing and you have to picture this, there was centuries of silence and there was no prophets. That passage, that like kind of blank page that you find between the Old Testament and New Testament, we refer to it as the intertestamental period. That's like a couple hundred years or 400 years there was no prophecy being spoken, right? There, God was silent before the people, and so they're waiting. And so it's like this dramatic pause that is coming right before uh, God comes. And now the Messiah comes onto the scene, or so they were picturing. They're kind of connecting dots. And it's helpful for us to understand and see when they say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They've been waiting, waiting a long, long time for the king to come. And make no mistake, what they thought at that point, remember the, the prophecy of, of Daniel? It came true. Persia came, then the Greeks, then Rome. So Jesus shows up in the time of the Roman Empire. Rome has its rule over Israel, over Jerusalem. They thought there was a victorious warrior that was coming. They thought that he was coming to establish his kingdom and overthrow the tyranny and, 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 and in control of Caesar. That is not why Jesus came. That is not the kind of king that he came. He came to establish his kingdom, but it was first to be a spiritual kingdom. He was going to work and move in the hearts of men before he established a kingdom of men. 
And here what we have, again, he thought he was coming to overthrow, but he comes humbly on a donkey, not on a warhouse, or saying what? I come not to be served, but to serve others. He came to rule, but not in the way that was expected. He came to rule spiritually and over hearts and to establish his spiritual kingdom before he established any sort of physical kingdom. And that's what he's doing right here. And it's this picture. And so they're so close, but they're missing it just a little bit. But again, now the disciples later are able to look back and they're like, oh, that's what he was doing, right? That's the picture of what he's saying. He's coming as a king, but he's coming in his way to establish his kingdom in his, in his own way. And so here's the thing that we understand. Jesus is the triumphant king that we need. Here's the second thing. Jesus is the source of peace that we seek. Notice what they say here, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. See, they got that right. They understood that if there was no peace in heaven, that there would never be peace on earth. When God was establishing his peace through his son, that that was going to bring the peace needed in the lives of the people. And the truth is this, church, I think so many times the narrative of our world today is that you find peace or ultimately freedom, whatever kind of word you want to put toward that, in you doing what you want to do, right? Here's a phrase that kind of rules our day. You do you, right? You just do you. And if you do you, then you're going to find the peace that you're looking for. How, how is that working out for this world that we're living in, right? I don't know what, I, what you're seeing, but I'm seeing more depression, more anxiety, more disappointment, more discouragement, more lack of fulfillment, as people are trying to do more and more of their own way, living freely in their own way. See, here's what the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Jesus would say, is that there is no peace that you can, true peace that you can find apart from God's authority in your life. I would say it this way. If you find your life lacking the peace that you so desperately need, it's probably because Jesus does not have the authority in your life that he was intended to have. You see, in God's kingdom, when Jesus is on the throne, that is where peace is found. It is in Jesus' law. It is in Jesus' instruction. It is in his precepts and his commands and in his way that we find the peace that we are looking for. And so what he's doing here at this moment is he's, again, ushering in his spiritual kingdom, his heavenly kingdom. And in this kingdom is where peace is truly found. That's why they say peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And again, Jesus wanted to make this point amply clear. That's why he chose that colt, and he, said, he knew exactly what he was doing when he sent for that colt. He was fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah. We'll put it on the screen. It's Zechariah 9.9. Look what it says. It says, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. That's, that's the people of Israel, right? That's Jerusalem. Oh, sing aloud, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. See, Jesus wanted them to understand the picture. He was establishing his kingdom, and in his kingdom is where true peace is found. Listen, church, again, our hearts are inclined toward our version of whatever peace we're looking for. We want it our way. I know the, the thought of a king, like we, we live in a nation that isn't like super like excited about kingship, right? 
Like several hundred years ago, we fought some wars to kind of get out from under a king, right? We're pretty excited. Like we're, you know, democracy and, you know, let the people speak and all, you know, we're all for that. I get that. That's, I'm not saying that that's how this earth, but, but we were meant to be under the reign and rule of our heavenly king, under King Jesus. And under King Jesus is where our peace is truly found. So listen, church, in so much as Jesus rules in our homes, that's where our homes will have peace. In so much as Jesus rules in our hearts, that's where our hearts will have peace. In so much as Jesus rules and reigns over our church, that's so much where we will have peace here. Jesus is the source of the peace that we seek. It is his reign that leads to our peace. And here's the last thing. We see this in the response to the Pharisees. Oh, the Pharisees, right? Jesus can't do anything without them kind of poking at, picking at something he's doing. Look at verse 39. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. He's like, tell them not to do that. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Here's the third thing. You can write this down. Jesus is worthy of all the worship we bring. In that moment, again, slightly misguided, slightly missing the point, but nonetheless, they were worshiping the King Jesus. And upon the Pharisees saying, hey, Jesus, what are you doing? Knock it off. He's like, no, no. Listen, even if they were silent, all of creation would sing in worship to me. See, the Pharisees were worried because, one, they didn't want to see people following after Jesus, right? He spoke with his own authority. He wasn't like them. It was all about the, like, whose rabbi you were kind of coming from or whose authority you were teaching under, all of that. They asked him, by whose authority do you teach these things, right? You teach like nobody else. You're not quoting other people or other rabbis or, or all these things. You're speaking in, in fresh words with fresh authority like we've never seen before. And Jesus is like, I come by the authority of my father. I come in my own authority. Jesus is like, I have the authority to speak these things. And so they didn't like that. The other thing that they were worried about is they say, hey, knock it off. Don't cause too much of a stir because if we do, if we do, then Rome is going to respond, right? If we don't rock the boat, then it's going to be okay. But again, picture this. There's, there's millions of people that have now gathered for Passover and they're stirring up this whole excitement about Jesus being the king. They're like, we already have a king. There's King Herod is here and he's, he's, he's like kind of the functional sort of ruler. He wasn't much of a ruler. He was just kind of you know, more of like there as a, as a placeholder. But we have Caesar. Like we, we are under the control and authority of Rome. What are you doing? Like they're gonna squash us. What are we, you cannot do that. And he says, tell, rebuke your disciples. Tell them to stop. You can't come in saying, I am the king. And he's like, listen, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Listen, church, if we were to fail to meet next Sunday, right, and these, this room was empty, and we weren't here to sing the praises to Jesus that are worth him, make no mistake that the clouds, the, stun, the sun, the stars, the grass, the trees, the very stones would cry out to God as King Jesus that, that, that all of creation is worshiping. Why? Because they were made by him. He is their maker. He is the ruler. And so even our creation is speaking and pointing to, it says that, that the heavens declare the glory of his hands, right? The, the, the majesty of who he is, is is seen in the things that he has made. And so here we have, he says, even if we were silent, the very stones would cry out. 
And so church, I think it's just a good reminder for us. This is why we gather on Sundays. We call this, and we try, we're very specific about it. We call this on Sundays a worship service. Now, I know you come here for a variety of reasons. You probably, I hope, that you like some of the other people that you're sitting around or with, right? We enjoy seeing each other. Uh, we want to kind of engage in this. I think a lot of us come hoping to maybe learn something from God's word, um, despite sometimes my best efforts, like we, we're still gonna hear from God's word, right? But we, we come to learn. But, but ultimately, the reason that we gather each and every week is for worship. That is the primary purpose that we are here, church, and maybe you did, that wasn't kind of the thought you had walking in, but I hope it is increasingly as you grow in your knowledge and understanding of God and what the church is. We call this a worship center. We worship here at the church on a weekly basis because we need this rhythm of regular worship in our lives. This is why we gather. And so it is, yes, to hear God's word, but only in so much as it is a worshipful response to God and who he is. Even as we're hearing the word of God preached, we're not just trying to grow in our intellect or our knowledge or trying to puff up our heads. What we're trying to do is get our hearts more rightly aligned with God and who he is so that we would walk more in step with him and thus worship him better, right? That we would understand who he is. And so hopefully as we hear God's word preached, it's stirring in our hearts in adoration and worship to God. And I just wanna encourage you that you would be preparing your heart for that even this weekend. You know, in the same way that, that God set before his people different feasts and festivals, we have certain things in our calendar that are rhythms and, 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 and practices that we have that are good for us. Every year on Easter Sunday, we gather and we celebrate the empty tomb that Jesus is alive. Every Friday before Easter Sunday, we gather together and we remember the work of Jesus on the cross and the, our sin that put him there. This is a good rhythm and a repetition for us to have. And I hope, again, that you've made plans to be here with us on both Friday and Sunday. They're two different services, but they bookend the weekend together and both are needed. Friday prepares us for the rejoicing that Sunday brings. If you don't understand the weight of our sin and the work of Jesus on the cross, then it is hard to rejoice in the empty tomb on Sunday morning. And so can I just encourage you, church, with this? Would you take some time this week to just read through the gospel accounts, read through what happened in this final week? Jesus taught a lot. As you actually look at it, you look between the triumphal entry and the death of Jesus, there's a ton that's happening there. There's teaching, there's um, things that he's explaining and, 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 and things that he's doing, and, and you get to see a whole bunch, but would we look at that together? And then you see that final night as he's with his disciples and washing their feet and they're celebrating uh, Passover and he institutes the very first communion. I mean, would you take some time this week to prepare your heart for worship? You see, Jesus is worth all the worship that we can bring. And even if we fail to do it, all of creation is. But here's the reality is that we get to respond to Christ in worship. He is worthy of all the worship that he could bring. So that is why we sing the songs that we sing. That is why we do it with the energy that we do it with, right? That is why we do it with the regularity that we have in this, is because we want to respond. Our hearts are drawn toward this, to respond to King Jesus for who he is. And we have this opportunity to do this, not just on Sundays, but each and every day. As part of our lives, the way that we live, the things that we do, the way that we kind of conduct our day, we can live in a worshipful response to King Jesus because he is worthy of all of that. Let's do that now. Let's pray.
Jesus, we thank you for all that you've done, God, all that you've accomplished for your work on the cross. God, your victory over death through your resurrection. And Jesus, we know and we see you seated on the throne even today. God, we declare that you are not just the king of the world, but you are the king of our own hearts. God, we want to put you in the rightful place in the throne in our own hearts. God, respond to you as the king that you are. And so, Lord, I pray that in doing that, that you would lead us into greater worship of you. God, that we would have a right and, and good understanding of what you came to do. God, you came to forgive sins through your death that we might have a reconciled relationship through you. And God, through your miraculous resurrection from the grave, God, that you impart life to us. And all we do is we respond in belief to you. God, we believe you are who you say you are. God, we worship you as the king that you truly are. And so, Lord, would you stir our hearts anew, afresh. God, would you work in us even this week, prepare our hearts for this weekend. God, we look to you, we respond to you, we give you praise and acknowledge you as king. God, we do this in the name of your son. Amen.